Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Well, we got back to producing episodes last night, and if you are one of those interested listeners of the podcast that can't get enough fast enough, Maybe you've already gotten to episode three, which we just published. It's a sunny and warm day here in South Florida, but the winds are kicking it up a notch. Well, as I told you from the very beginning, this was going to be a bit of a wander. And the last two episodes, entitled The Warren Commission Narrative Part 1 and Part 2, have been more tedious to listen to. I know that. And they have been the story as it was told by the Warren Commission itself. Well, hang on. We have two more of those episodes in this part of the wander. That is the one coming up that you're going to listen to today with me, episode four, The Warren Commission Narrative, part three. Now, once we finish today's episode, we'll dedicate one more episode after that to the conclusions which were in the Warren Commission report itself. Then we will take a step back and talk about what happens, what begins to unravel in the Warren Commission's narrative. That's when it gets particularly interesting. There's so many little cracks and crevices in this story that it will be a bit of a wander or seem like a bit of a wander, but hopefully we will keep it interesting enough as you go, and every once in a while we will stop to pull it all together. Uh, A number of folks whom I know that are interested in this topic have expressed an interest in doing a little bit of a talk radio format episode where we collectively discuss some of the things that are controversial. Stay tuned because a couple of those episodes are coming up as well. Also, if you want to provide direct feedback to me, then just email me at podcastjfk at gmail.com. P-O-D-C-A-S-T-J-F-K, podcastjfk at gmail.com. Feel free to leave any sort of comments, questions, or requests to cover topics. We also have a website for the podcast, and it's podcastjfk. P-O-D-C-A-S-T-J-F-K.com, podcastjfk.com. But unfortunately, we are having technical difficulties with the site this week, and it's being reconstructed. So I'll let you know once it's back up and running. The idea there is to provide some additional reference material on each episode in case you're interested in delving into some of the topics in more detail. There is also a blog on the site as well if you want to participate that way. All right, well, without further ado, let's get right to it. Next up is Episode 4, The Warren Commission Narrative, Part 3. During the morning of November 22nd, Marina Oswald followed President Kennedy's activities on television. She and Ruth Payne cried when they heard that the president had been shot. Ruth Payne translated the news of the shooting to Marina Oswald as it came over the television, including the report that the shots were probably fired from the building where Oswald worked. When Marina Oswald heard this, she recalled the Walker episode and the fact that her husband still owned the rifle. She went quickly to the Payne's garage where the rifle had been concealed in a blanket among their other belongings. It appeared to her that the rifle was still there, although she did not actually open the blanket. 
At about 3 p.m., the police arrived at the Payne house and asked Marina Oswald whether her husband owned a rifle. She said that he did and then led them into the garage and pointed to the rolled-up blanket. As a police officer lifted it, the blanket hung limply over either side of his arm. The rifle was not there. Meanwhile, at police headquarters, Captain Fritz had begun questioning Oswald. Soon after the start of the first interrogation, agents of the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service arrived and participated in the questioning. Oswald denied having anything to do with the assassination of President Kennedy or the murder of Patrolman Tippett. He claimed that he was eating lunch at the time of the assassination and that he then spoke with his foreman for five to ten minutes before going home. He denied that he owned a rifle and when confronted in a subsequent interview with a picture showing him holding a rifle and a pistol, he claimed that his face had been superimposed on someone else's body. He refused to answer any questions about the presence in his wallet of a selective service card with his picture and the name Alec J. Heidel. During the questioning of Oswald on the third floor of the police department, more than 100 representatives of the press, the radio, and television were crowded into the hallway through which Oswald had to pass when being taken from his cell to Captain Fritz's office for interrogation. Reporters tried to interview Oswald during these trips. Between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, he appeared in the hallway at least 16 times. The generally confused conditions outside and inside Captain Fritz's office increased the difficulty of police questioning. Advised by the police that he could communicate with an attorney, Oswald made several telephone calls on Saturday in an effort to procure representation of his own choice and discussed the matter with the president of the local bar association who offered to obtain counsel. Oswald declined the offer saying that he would first try to obtain counsel by himself. By Sunday morning, he had not yet engaged an attorney. At 7.10 p.m. on November 22, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was formally advised that he had been charged with the murder of Patrolman J.D. Tippett. Several witnesses to the Tippett slaying and to the subsequent flight of the gunman had positively identified Oswald in police lineups. While positive firearm identification evidence was not available at the time, the revolver in Oswald's possession at the time of his arrest was of a type which could have fired the shots that killed Tippett. The formal charge against Oswald for the assassination of President Kennedy was lodged shortly after 1.30 a.m., on Saturday, November 23rd. By 10 p.m. of the day of the assassination, the FBI had traced the rifle found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository to a mail order house in Chicago, which had purchased it from a distributor in New York. Approximately six hours later, the Chicago firm advised that this rifle had been ordered in March 1963 by an A. Heidel, for shipment to post office box 2915 in Dallas, Texas, a box rented by Oswald. Payment for this rifle was remitted by a money order signed by A. Heidel. By 6.45 p.m. on November 23rd, 
the FBI was able to advise the Dallas police that, as a result of handwriting analysis of the documents used to purchase the rifle, it had concluded that the rifle had been ordered by Lee Harvey Oswald. Throughout Friday and Saturday, the Dallas police released to the public many of the details concerning the alleged evidence against Oswald. Police officials discussed important aspects of the case, usually in the course of impromptu and confused press conferences in the third floor corridor. Some of the information divulged was erroneous. Efforts by the news media representatives to reconstruct the crime and promptly report details frequently led to erroneous and often conflicting reports. At the urgings of the newsman, Chief of Police Jesse E. Curry brought Oswell to a press conference in the police assembly room shortly after midnight of the day Oswald was arrested. The assembly room was crowded with newsmen who had come to Dallas from all over the country. They shouted questions at Oswald and flashed cameras at him. Among this group was a 52-year-old Dallas nightclub operator, Jack Ruby. On Sunday morning, November 24th, arrangements were made for Oswald's transfer from the city jail to the Dallas County Jail, about one mile away. The news media had been informed on Saturday night that the transfer of Oswald would not take place until after 10 a.m. on Sunday. Earlier on Sunday, between 2.30 and 3 a.m., anonymous telephone calls threatening Oswald's life had been received by the Dallas office of the FBI and by the office of the county sheriff. Nevertheless, on Sunday morning, television, radio, and newspaper representatives crowded into the basement to record the transfer. As viewed through television cameras, Oswald would emerge from a door in front of the cameras and proceed to the transfer vehicle. To the right of the cameras was a down ramp from Main Street on the north. To the left was an up ramp leading to Commerce Street on the south. The armored truck in which Oswald was to be transferred arrived shortly after 11 a.m. Police officials then decided, however, that an unmarked police car would be preferable for the trip because of its greater speed and maneuverability. At approximately 11.20 a.m., Oswald emerged from the basement jail office flanked by detectives on either side and at his rear. He took a few steps toward the car and was in the glaring light of the television cameras when a man suddenly darted out from an area on the right of the cameras where newsmen had been assembled. The man was carrying a Colt 38 revolver in his right hand and, while millions watched on television, he moved quickly to within a few feet of Oswald and fired one shot into Oswald's abdomen. Oswald groaned with pain as he fell to the ground and quickly lost consciousness. Within seven minutes, Oswald was at Parkland Hospital where, without having regained consciousness, he was pronounced dead at 1.07 p.m. The man who killed Oswald was Jack Ruby. He was instantly arrested and, minutes later, confined in a cell on the fifth floor of the Dallas Police Jail. Under interrogation, he denied that the killing of Oswald was, in any way, connected with a conspiracy involving the assassination of President Kennedy. He maintained that he had killed Oswald in a temporary fit of depression and rage over the president's death. 
Ruby was transferred the following day to the county jail without notice to the press or to police officers not directly involved in the transfer. Indicted for the murder of Oswald by the state of Texas on November 26, 1963, Ruby was found guilty on March 14, 1964, and sentenced to death. As of September 1964, his case was pending on appeal. This is your host, Jeff Curdell, and I hope that you've enjoyed Episode 4 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.